So this is a time where you see what is named five meal pattern, uh, where people would eat at work, no, at home. They would have a, a mid-morning meal at work with colleagues. They would go home for a hot three-course lunch that the women had been cooking while while working in and out of, of, of the family business. The men would meet old schoolmates and friends in cafes in the afternoon, and then the family would gather again in the in the evening. Now, this pattern, which according to Rotenberg is found in, in many large uh, commercial cities around 1900, changed with industrialize, uh, industrialization, where we uh, now see a distance between household and workplace. We see collectively negotiated working hours and uh, collectively negotiated breaks for eating. And the five meal pattern vanishes. And instead, we see a three meal pattern, which is sort of described as typical for industrial societies, where people eat two meals at home, morning and and, and evening. And then they have a meal at work, which is often a, a small lunch, a convenient lunch. And this, the, the meals that you would have in between here, they still exist, but they're not social events. They're not socially regulated events any longer. So the question is, of course, what happens in post-industrial societies where we have much more flexible work lives, where we generally see a destructuring and disruption of traditional culture. We see a lot of individualization going on, globalization and countries moving, becoming more and more like each other, homogenization. So the question is, what happens with eating in in modern societies. And this, we were discussing this in the 80s and, and found that very interesting. And there were, of course, in the literature, um, hypotheses being forwarded about modern eating, such as Falk and Witt and Mintz talking about eating patterns being destructured because of individualization. People would follow their own time rhythm. There would be no socially shared rhythm in society longer any longer. There was in the US, you would find the grazing hypothesis meaning that people would not sit, you know, and have decent meals with each other, but they would be nibbling and eating snacks whenever they found food or were hungry during the day, an apple, a burger, a sausage, whatever, just like cows grazing. And then there's been discussing about uh, commercialization or marketization of eating, that is much more eating out, that households are losing their place sort of as, as the primary place for eating and cooking. There's Claude Fuchler's uh, hypothesis from the late 1980s, about gastroanomia, that the culinary tradition and normativity is disrupted. And then there's been discussions by Wouters suggesting an informalization of of manners in modern society, which would include a relaxation of table manners. So these are things that we read and we thought were interesting to pursue in an empirical study. So we decided we would actually look at these hypotheses from an empirical point of view, and we would do a comparative study of four Nordic countries. And they are here, Denmark, Norway, Sweden, and Finland. And they are uh, countries which share many features. They're all Lutheran uh, by religion. They're a small population. They're quite affluent. They have a long tradition for social democratic welfare states. And they are in the north of Europe. So they're cold winters and cold evenings, not so much sitting around in, in, in bars um, at night. And then there are differences between these countries. There's the language. Finland has a completely different language, whereas the other three share similar languages. Uh, Denmark is much closer to continental Europe 
than and much more influenced by German culture than the, the rest of the countries. And of course, there are institutional and structural circumstances that differ between the countries. But we have very shared histories. I mean, all of these countries have belonged to each other at different points. Finland has been part of Sweden. Norway has been part of Sweden and Denmark and etc. etc. So these, these have very intertwined uh, histories. So uh, what we did in these two projects was that we, sorry, we conducted two almost identical studies. In 1997, we used telephone interviews with randomly selected populations. Uh, the study population was almost 5,000 people. And in 2012, we did we worked by the internet uh, and interviewed a little more than 8,000 people. And the focus of these interviews, which are exactly the same in the two years, is eating patterns. We asked very simple questions. When did you eat? What did you eat? Where did you eat? With whom did you eat? And we focused on one day of eating the day before the interview. So this is the questionnaire. We started by asking, what, when was the first time you ate yesterday? And then we asked, was that cold food or hot food? If it was cold food, we had a long list of things that people could uh, could eat. If it was hot food, we had a lot of more detailed questions about the main course, the center, the supplements, sort of the, the meal format. How was the meal structured? And what was what were the elements in the meals? Uh, we also asked the name of the dish. We asked whether there were more than one course. We asked who had prepared this food. And in both kind of meals, we asked about beverages. Where did you eat? With whom? Did everybody eat the same food? Uh, or did people have special food? What happened while you ate? Did you do anything else? Did you read? Did you listen to the radio? And for how long did the eating take place? And then when did you eat the next time? And then we went through all that again. And the next time and the next time, up to 10 times in the first interview and up to 13 times in the second interview. So these were quite long interviews. From these data, we were able to reconstruct what we call the eating pattern, that is the time and rhythm of eating events, the number of events, the alternations of hot and cold events, the meal formats, that is the, the structure of, of meals and eating events, <clears throat> and the social context about how were meals arranged. And with these data, we thought we could address these, these uh, hypotheses of disruption, individualization, delocalization, and flexibilization. These are the first results from 1997. And what you see here is, for instance, here in Denmark, you see 24 hours over the day. And here you see how many percentage of the population who ate either the first meal which we call breakfast, uh, a cold meal, these are the blue ones, or a hot meal, which are the red ones. And when you look at these figures, you can see immediately that the talk about total individualization and uh, grazing, et cetera, et cetera, is rejected. This hypothesis is just not true. What we see here are shared, socially shared times where people, larger parts of the populations will eat. For instance, in Denmark, 50% will eat between 12 and 1. They will have lunch and a little less than 50% will eat a, a, a hot meal at 6 o'clock, 6 or 7 o'clock at night. And similar peaks are seen in, in the other countries. So every country has clear socially shared rhythms of eating. And you can also see that the, 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 the patterns are not the same. They are nationally distinct. And there are two clusters here. On the left, you have Denmark and Norway, which are countries with one big peak of hot meals in the evening or late afternoons in Norway. And in Finland and Sweden, you have several hot peaks. 
So in Finland and Sweden, we have a tradition for having hot lunches. And in Denmark and Norway, we would eat cold lunches, that is uh, open sandwiches. Uh, whereas in Finland and Sweden, you had cooked meals for, for lunch. So in that way, we have very two very distinct and very different food cultures in the Nordic countries. And in 2012, these patterns are pretty much the same. The, the, the patterning in each country has not changed much. So there's no sign that these people that these patterns will be harmonized. I mean, it's, it's a bit interesting because working hours and all that uh, female participation in workforce, all that is very similar across the countries. And still, uh, we have very different uh, eating patterns. You can see here the Norwegians, they will eat a hot dinner at, at four o'clock in the afternoon, whereas in Denmark, it's around six or seven. And to some of us, it's always been a mystery. How can how can they serve a hot meal in Norwegian homes at four o'clock? Uh, but they do, uh, and they still do. There are national distinct patterns, and they are socially shared within countries. We also identified one pattern which deviates from this culturally shared eating rhythms. And this pattern we found in all countries, and we call it an unsynchronized pattern. Uh, and it is pretty much the same in all countries. It's a, it's a pattern with fewer meals and uh, a, a later start. You can see here that here you have the unsynchronized and here you have the, synchroni the, the synchronized, that's two to five clusters who eat in similar ways. Uh, and whereas all of these people, they have uh, a meal before 10 o'clock, it's only 24% of the unsynchronized. Fewer eat breakfast here, fewer eat lunch. They eat dinner just as everybody else, and they had fewer snakes. So all in all, these people, they have fewer meals than, uh, than the rest of the population, and they eat in a different, slightly different rhythm. And we found that this pattern increased over the years uh, on weekdays from 17 to 23%, on weekends from 33 to 41%. And it is uh, when we looked at who, who is sort of uh, reporting such a pattern, it's uh, very much the unemployed, it's people who are off work the day before the interview, it's students, pensioners, only 20% of those working report such a, a pattern. And it's linked uh, to life phase. It's the young and the singles. So there is an increase in this pattern and uh, future measures will have to see whether this is actually a new uh, way of eating, which will spread or whether it is indeed linked to a, a specific life phase. And, 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 uh, and that's it. We asked people what they ate. And when looking at what people eat, what we eat in the Nordic countries, we see a lot of stability. There are a lot of traditional elements in our national food cultures which persist. We have the two marked lunch cultures. They're, they're very much very stable in all countries. We have in all four countries a dominant position of meat in dinners. And we have a lot of simple meat formats for lunch and dinner. So the, the Nordic eating is not complex. It's quite simple, actually. We do see some changes, and a lot of these changes uh, express some kind of harmonization between the countries because they become more similar. In all countries, we see a move towards water becoming the most popular drink for lunch and dinners. We see an increase in vegetarian hot lunches and dinners. We see an introduction of fruit and vegetables at new meals, uh, for instance, fruit at breakfast and uh, vegetables at cold lunches in Norway and Denmark. That is new. We see a rise in cereals and yogurts for breakfast. We see a lot of simplification going on one course dinners, no preparation foods, and we see a radical decline in cake-based in-betweens. And I know from Stanley that you're interested in sugar, so I made this graph for you to show you how sugar practices or some sugar practices changed. This is a graph showing the development of uh, eating events where people only had snacks, no food served, only snacks. 
And you can see here, if you look at Denmark in 1997, more than 50% of such events were, were centered around cake. And that has declined radically in 2012. It's gone. I mean, it's gone from almost 60 to less than 20% of these events. And you see the same decline in, in the other countries as well. So this uh, uh, very well-established and old historic tradition in the Nordic countries that you have big cake meals you have, uh, which is something you'll invite guests over for. You'll have a, a big cake buffet, preferably home-baked, different cakes, at least three or four kinds. If you're a, a real farming woman, you would have that at least. And in modern life, you will always have four or five types of cake in your freezer. So you can always establish this kind of, of serving. This is on de in radically declined during these 15 years. And instead, we see people eating more commercialized, uh, ready-bought sweets, snacks and sweets. Uh, that is, I mean, it's tripling in Finland. It's quite, it's quite dramatic changes, actually. And we also see it, uh, 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 an increase in, in eating fruits in some of the countries, not in Finland. This is one of these examples where you would say this is certainly a, a commercialization of eating. This is, this is changing a food tradition of the Nordic countries. We took an interest in where do people eat? And the question is, of course, do we move out of the home? Do we eat, in a, eat out, as has been sort of the reality in many other countries? And you can see here that the blue columns here, the, the, that's home eating. It's hardly changed. Around 70% of uh, the meals that people in average eat in, in Denmark, for instance, they're, they're taken at home. And the same goes for Norway and Sweden. I cannot show you all figures for Finland because we had a technical problem with the data collection in 97 that makes some of these analysis meaningless in Finland. As you see here, uh, eating in the Nordic countries is something that really, really, really takes place at home and then at work or school. And when it comes to cafes and restaurants, it's not much. It doesn't really show much when you look at population averages like this. Uh, and when you ask people, what did you do yesterday, then uh, restaurant eating is actually almost nothing. But we also asked a question, a, more, a frequency question, how often uh, would you say you're eaten at a restaurant, cafe or the like during the last year? As you can see here, you see national differences again. First of all, you see that the proportion of people who never go to restaurant has declined in all countries. It's become something that almost everybody does. But as you can also see, like for instance, in Denmark, the most typical the most typical frequency of eating at a restaurant is less than once a month. And uh, eating at restaurants uh, every week is something that the Finns have increased tremendously and they're reaching Swedish proportions. In Sweden and Finland, you have more eating at restaurants than we do in Norway and Denmark. And when we look at when this, this happens during the day, you can see here in Denmark, we have this very small green peaks or whatever you would call it. It's not a peak, we're actually just a, a line of uh, people eating at the restaurants. Whereas in, in Finland and Sweden, you see that there are there is a concentration around midday. This is where the Finns and the Swedes, they go out for restaurant meals. And here is a, a focus on people who go to work. Uh, you can see the blue and the purple here. These are Sweden and Finland. Uh, a lot of, of people who work, they go to restaurants. Not a lot, but much, many more than the, the rest, than the Danes and the Norwegians. So going to restaurants while when working, that is what, what Finns and Swedes do to some degree. Here you can see 15% of the Swedes, 11% of the, of the Finns who worked would would go out for lunch. And this is, of course, uh, 
an example of how institutionalization forms our eating habits. Uh, in Sweden and Finland, um, eating hot meals for lunch is something which is part of welfare policy. Following uh, the 1930s welfare reforms in Sweden uh, in, in the fight against poverty and following World War II in Finland, where a lot of men had been killed. So to keep women in the workforce, the Finnish government instituted uh, free hot lunches uh, at all schools, as they had in Sweden. And so the adults also needed hot lunches. That has been supported by government subsidies and by employer subsidies. So in, in most Swedish workplaces, in the large ones, you, you will find canteens with hot lunches and you will find it in all schools in these countries. So when we look at this eating out, these two clusters, these two differences, uh, we will see that there is a historical institutional explanation for this. So because of this hot, uh, hot meals for children, Uh, the habit of making a lunch pack is less, less inter internalized in Finland and Sweden than it is in Denmark. And there's, a, of course, a lot of policy behind this uh, and a lot of subsidies to make that happen. Do we see more lonely eating in the Nordic countries? And yes, in some countries, in Denmark, there's more individual eating alone. Uh, in Norway, the same, but not in Sweden. That is less We see a small decline in family eating, but it's not radical. But there is a tendency, at least in some countries, that family eating might be on the decline. Still, when we take a focus on what, what you could call family meals, and we define family meals in this study as hot meals eaten at home, everybody eating the same food and everybody eating at the same time. So this is a meal where you, you're able to, you sit around a table and you eat the same food and you eat at the same time. So this is sort of the classic idea of a family meal. And here, if you look at Denmark weekend and uh, in 97 and 2012 and, nine, and weekdays, you will see that there's a slight increase actually, very small, but it's a stable pattern. And it is a stable pattern in all, there's an increase in Sweden, but it is a relatively stable pattern in the four Nordic countries. So we would say, there's a small decline here though in weekdays in Finland, but we would say that, that this sort of signifies that, that um, sharing food with your whole family is a very uh, living and vivid tradition in the Nordic countries. And here you can see that the pattern in, in how this sort of uh, plays out over the, over the life phases that when you are young, there are fewer of these meals, but still it's, it's about 50% of those living with others who had such a meal yesterday. And when, once you have small children, this increases. And then, of course, it decreases when your children reach the teenage age. And then when your children leave home, you have more of these meals. When you have less outgoing activities, etc., you have more of these meals in the older generation. So this makes sense, we think. In terms of duration of eating, we do see changes towards many more shorter meals. Here you see the red ones are the less than 10 minutes meals. And you can see a giant increase in Denmark. You can also see a, a, a very radical in, decrease in, uh, in uh, having long meals, meals lasting more than 40 minutes, which was somewhat typical in Denmark in 97. That has become equally rare as in the other countries. So in that sense, we see some kind of harmonization here, many more uh, short meals, and we see an increase in, in meals lasting between 10-20 minutes. We see this as a sign that eating is becoming more for, uh, informal, it's faster than it was. What do people do while they eat? The blue bars here, eating events where nothing else is going on than eating. That is, this is 
might be events where you actually have conversations with each other or that you stare out in space. We don't know, but it's you're not disturbed by other activities. And that has gone down. The blue ones have gone down in all countries, not as much in Sweden as in the rest. And we see an increase in the red bars, that is watching television while you eat. And we see that in uh, 2012, around 10 More than 10% of meals are meals where you use a computer or a tablet or a smartphone while eating. And we checked, uh, of course, uh, how does this distribute across types of meals? And uh, watching television and using tablets, etc. is something you do at in-betweens much more than at the main meal. So it's actually not what you do with breakfast or lunch or dinner, not very much, not as much as as the in-betweens. And we took an interest in cooking, who did the cooking, and, and this is uh, another area where we see marked changes. Uh, this is about families uh, or households with more than one person and who yesterday had a hot meal uh, that was shared with others in the household. And you can see here that uh, the proportion of such meals that men made, or 29% made that uh, were cooked by men, uh, and which is a, a, a quite a large increase over the 15 years. And similarly, you can see a large decrease uh, of, of, of uh, meals that are cooked entirely by women and a doubling of shared cooking and also others making the food. This is likely to be uh, commercially made takeaway, or it could, of course, be other persons, but it, it, this is where the takeaways Um, are hidden. So this is, we consider this a radical change, actually a a big change. And uh, of course, we were interested in who are these men uh, who cook more? And our hypothesis would be that they would be younger and well-educated men. And that was not true, because it turned out that no matter what kind of grouping we made, we have age here, we have whether or not people were working, educational level, household type, income. And what what you see is that in all groups of men, there is a large uh, increase in men's uh, cooking. So we see this as a very profound and very pervasive cultural change in the Nordic countries that men are, are really seriously moving into the kitchens. And when we look at class differences in 1997, we had, we had clear class differences uh, with respect to men cooking, Uh, the working class men cooking less often than uh, the the intermediate or the salariate, but these uh, class differences had vanished in 2012. So we we think this is an uh, an interesting change actually. So Stanley asked me to say a few things about uh, food insecurity. And in this Nordic study, we did uh, ask a few questions about that. So we measured food security on on two levels of um, two levels of food budget restriction and food security. So we we asked these uh, simple question within the last two 12 months. I've been forced to purchase cheaper food in order to afford other things, or I've always had enough food uh, of whatever kind I would like. Uh, and these questions are taken from the US uh, USDA's uh, Food and Nutrition Services. There monitoring of food insecurity in the US. So if people uh, uh, confirmed this positive uh, sentence, they would be considered food secure. If they uh, answered one of these, we put them in a group called low or marginal food security, which might be a bit 
over the top, but that's what we call it in the Nordic study. And if they uh, confirmed both of these, we said they were food insecure. We, on the basis of, 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 of these data, we, we categorized three levels, food secure, low marginal security, and food insecurity. And as you see here in, in the Nordic countries, it's 1.6% of the Nordic populations as such, which end up in this category of food insecurity. Many more in Finland than in the other countries. In 2012, Finland had a large unemployment uh, compared to the other countries. And here, this is about having enough food to eat. And you can see the large majority that did have enough food to eat in the Nordic countries. Uh, however, some would say that sometimes they don't have enough food to eat. Uh, the higher risk, higher risk for food insecurity, the pattern is the same as in other countries. These are the low-income groups, the young, the women, single parents, and single parent households. So the, the, the controversial finding here is that this is about income. It is very much about income, uh, uh, and income keep persist as a as a defining factor when we do the multivariate analysis. So this is contrary to the ideology in the Nordic countries, where uh, it's a general thought that nobody needs to suffer any lack of food because of the welfare systems. But this is not true. We did a few years later a, a larger study in, in Denmark, a qualitative and quantitative uh, multi-method study about uh, food insecurity and food security, and we call it Food in Turbulent Times, the FIT study. And here we found uh, uh, actually a larger proportion of people that we classified as food insecure or with low food security. We, we renamed these categories in, in this study, we thought. It was a bit harsh to talk about very uh, hunger and et cetera, et cetera. So we, 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 we operate with low and very low food security, which is also, I think, the new American terms. And we found like 8% who actually were either low or very low in food insecurity and 8% with severe budget restrictions and 17% with mild uh, budget restriction. And of course, the large uh, majority uh, being uh, food secure. And we found out that that being a level of food security actually does seem to be related to, for instance, unhealthy eating. If you're food secure, we found 10% eating an unhealthy diet, but 26 and 35% among those with low food security. In terms of high life satisfaction, 44% of the food secure have high life satisfaction, only 4 and 11% among those with low food insecurity. We analyzed diet-related greenhouse gas emissions, and we found the opposite pattern there. The more secure, the higher greenhouse gas emissions, and the more low security you had, the less greenhouse gas emissions. And so this is a contradictory uh, uh, tendency. So we have uh, climate-friendly meals going hand in hand with unhealthy meals, which is against all the optimistic modeling that is going on these years. We are working more with these data, and I hope to be able to publish something quite soon about that. So who are the, the food secure? How is food security distributed across populations? And again, here you see uh, people below the poverty line have more. Uh, there are more, more people in that group of, of income who are insecure or have low security. 
than in the other in the other group. So this is very much uh, there's a gradient with income. Uh, there's a lower proportion who are food secure than in the the more wealthy parents. It's, it's not a surprise, but still, it is very important to state to show this in in Nordic countries because it's against it's against uh, official wisdom. And here you see the household composition, the same thing. The single parents we have more low security there than in the other country in the other household types. So what are we learning from this kind of, of study? Um, we asked about this idea of harmonization. Are the Nordic countries becoming more and more similar? And we think that what we see is a composite picture. We see that some, some of the changes that are going on make Nordic countries more similar. That's the television eating, the gendering of cooking, the water, the vegetarian dishes, the simplification, and the re or the degendering of cooking. These are actually shared shared patterns. But there are still differences, national differences, which prevail. The hot and lunch countries, hot and cold lunch countries is, is not changing. Uh, and, and linked to this, and I didn't say that, but I should have said that, in Finland and Sweden, we see uh, a, a much later, much more flexible eating pattern in the evening than we see in, uh, in Norway and Denmark. And more skipping dinners and more eating out during the day. It's very clear that in Finland and Sweden, uh, eating hot meals with the family in the evening is something which is more flexible than in Norway and Denmark, where you have more fixed eating times. And we don't see any signs in the Nordic countries that we have absorbed this uh, supposedly global pattern of eating out that has not really happened in the Nordic countries. When we look at how patterns differentiate within the countries, we would say that most of the differentiation we find, and I haven't showed you this, but most of what we find is follow in a very straightforward manner from everyday life arrangements, work life, household and life phase. So people working or in school, they will eat more with colleagues. People living alone will eat more alone. Young will eat shorter meals, more in front of the television. The elderly will eat more with others and more complex meals. And there will be more family meals in household with small children, et cetera, et cetera. The re and the degendering of cooking crosses this. This is sort of something which has happened in all kinds of households. We see a few differentiations re relating to social status and to economic resources. There's the food insecurity that I just showed you. Um, besides of this, we also see that people with lower income, besides being having a higher risk for low security, we also see that they eat less often out and they have fewer guests for meals. And there's no class, there are no clear social class differences in the rhythm of eating, in the overall social context of eating, or in the codes of conduct in relation to eating. So for these basic elements of eating patterns, which are addressed in this study, we see that social distinctions do not appear to be very important. They play out in other fields, but this everyday rhythm, the routines of eating, they're pretty much the same across social divides. So some rough conclusions about modern eating. We had these hypotheses, the disruption of meal patterns. No, we don't see that. We see a small increase in unsynchronized eating, but we don't know whether this is really going to take over as a new pattern. Do we see a lot of uh, delocalization and commercialization? No. We don't see people moving out of the home. I mean, the home is still the, the primary scene for meals in the Nordic countries, but we might see a commercialization in terms of more, more foods and snacks being bought rather than homemade. Uh, we see a little individualization. We see some fluctuations. We see some more eating alone. 
And we do see indeed flexibilizations in terms of shorter meals and, and a lot of more meals with eating in the sofa, for instance, and many more meals uh, while other things are going on. So basically, we would say there's a remarkable stability in Nordic eating patterns. This appears to be different from trends in the UK and in other countries. This is from a study by Marshall and Pettinger or a paper by them where they show the UK meal patterns in, the 19, in 1961 and in 2001. And you can see a very large decrease in the peaks and, uh, and especially much smaller peaks than in the Nordic countries. So a lot more seems to have been going on in the UK than in Denmark. And then there's the, the gendering of cooking, which we think is a major change. So that, that has changed. We have published a lot of papers from this study, but we have uh, also published a book. This is what I thought I would say now. And I will stop sharing my 